Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. The Middle East is going through a profound political, economic, social transformation. In the past couple of years, peace treaties have been signed between Arab countries and Israel. New investment and trade relationships are emerging based on economics, not ideology or religion. The threat of war between Shia and Sunni seems to be fading. And Western powers, especially the United States, are becoming much less dominant, maybe much less relevant than they've been for at least 100 years. Almost more amazing than any of that, in December, more than 700,000 Saudi kids participated in a four-day rave in the Saudi desert with regular intermissions for Islamic prayers. What's going on? Has the Middle East of strict Islam suddenly turned into something more modern? Have they figured out how to move beyond religious conflict? In a world that wants to abandon hydrocarbons, Are the Arabs just enjoying the last party before their world collapses? What happens when foreign powers become spectators rather than actors? Is it imaginable that with the imperial powers more or less gone, the locals can actually find the peace and prosperity that has eluded them for so long? My guest today has some answers, or at least the knowledge, experience, and insight to ask better questions than I do. Neil Quilliam is deeply engaged with the Middle East and North Africa from his perch, current perch at Chatham House in London, his service in the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and his long history of living in and working on the Gulf and the Levant. Welcome, Neil. Thanks, Alan. Uh, very good to be here this afternoon. It's hard to know where to start with the Abraham Accords or the Rave. In overlapping ways, they both seem revolutionary. Am I overstating how fundamentally and how fast things seem to be changing in the Middle East, in the Gulf in particular? No, I don't think you are. I mean, if, you know, if we focus on the rave, actually, to begin with, I mean, what a transformation that Saudi Arabia is undergoing. I mean, you've gone from a situation, you know, where you had the religious police on the streets, you know, tapping people's legs or whacking them with sticks for, you know, dressing inappropriately or behaving immodestly, however one defines that to you know, having, as you said, you know, a very large bunch of young men and women mixing, dancing, partaking of all sorts of things um, you know, in, modern, in modern Saudi Arabia. I mean, that, that is big, that is profound, and that's, that's a huge transformation. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, those changes have been there for some time, but they've sort of been happening you know, under the surface. But now this is you know, right front and center it's 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 releasing the the energies of of Saudi youth, and that just seems to be you know just almost like a little tsunami that's just sweeping through the kingdom. MBS has really kind of you know hit the release button on that. Um, so I, I see that as 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 deep and profound. When one sort of drills down a little bit, you know that's not the whole population in, in Saudi itself. Of course, um, it does sit most comfortably with the elite, with the privileged, with those sort of sitting in the, in the major urban centers. It probably looks really quite different outside. 
in the you know in the in in the sort of the, the nether regions, if it were, of of the kingdom. Um, but absolutely, these this is this is a big and and in many ways exciting change. You said a couple things there that I want to tug on. One is I don't think I ever expected to hear the words modern Saudi Arabia connected to each other. That there is a modern Saudi Arabia is astounding. But you also referenced MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. How much of what's going on, how much of this release you're talking about is the crown prince having a vision and executing it? How much of it, is it about leadership? Is it, is he leading the parade or is the parade chasing him? I think, I mean, it's com- it's essentially a combination of the two things. I mean, the way the way I sort of characterize it is, you know, he came very, very quickly you know, to the forefront. His his father sort of brought him in. We we'd all been waiting for the next generation uh, prince to take over. You know, from Abdullah or from Salman, and many of us had fixated on Mohammed bin Nayef, thinking that you know he was going to be the next one. But actually, it it basically jumped another half generation and came down to MBS. And I think, quite frankly, MBS, you know, looked around him, looked at the situation, and realized with the country's you know burgeoning demographic. And with, with the hydrocarbons, you know, historical arc where it is, realize that, in fact, if, if this ruling family is going to hold on to power, if it's going to govern the kingdom for the next 50, 60 years, some deep change has to you know, take place. And I also think, you know, he was there, what, in his, in his late 20s, you know, playing on his whatever it would have been, his Xbox or whatever, you know, he, he was sat there having a lot of fun. Um, very much kind of, you know, a contemporary of his age, of course. He wasn't one of these older guys sort of sat in their 80s sort of pondering on, on where they come from. His, his, you know, I think, I guess his, his vision was very much on the future. He was in touch with that kind of sentiment. And something, I suppose, that, you know, is, is associated with youth, not necessarily, but, you know, there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's an energy, a dynamic, dynamism, there's a brashness and an impatience. And I think he obviously felt those things, but the population did too. You know, for a very long time, you know, we had heard about the reforms that Abdullah had been bringing in, and these were piecemeal reforms and piecemeal change. They would fly the flag to see, you know, can women drive? Can they not drive? You know, we've been hearing that story for at least 30 years. You know, there he is, he comes in and almost overnight (laughs) introduces these changes, obviously with the blessing of his father. And I think in doing so, you know, he sort of opened the floodgates, if you like, for a lot of sort of pent up excitement and enthusiasm from a Saudi youth which didn't recognize, you know, the Saudi of, of their fathers or their grandfathers. They, they, they recognized a country that they wanted it to look like, you know, elsewhere, like the West, where that energy is, is, is released. So I think he sort of opened the floodgates and you can see that's just swept through. Um, and 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 it's hard not to be caught up by that enthusiasm when 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 go, you know one goes to the kingdom, and I and I and I travel COVID permitting, you know I, I travel a lot, and the changes I've seen I, I've been going for twenty years now, but the changes I've seen in the last four or five years are are, are, are really breathtaking. I mean there are issues, there are massive problems, of course. That's not to say those things don't exist, but from a social perspective. You know, from from living in the kingdom, uh, I was on a postdoc fellowship twenty years ago, where my interaction with women was 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 
extremely rare during my year there to now going and sort of, you know, going to restaurants where there's music, where women and men are sitting on the same table. I mean, it's, it's, it, it sounds strange, but for me, it was almost like a culture shock. Just thinking, what am I doing sitting, sat in this restaurant where there's, where there's music? Uh, I'm sat, I'm sat with these young Saudi women that, that I've met in London and, and it's almost completely normal. One of the things you said, which is terribly important, is that when we in the West think about modern and think about reform, we hear democracy and voting and political change. And just to underline the point you made, that's not part of this story. This story is about a crown prince, a visionary crown prince, perhaps, uh, who clearly wants to remain in power wants the family that he comes from to be the king, to, to be the, the source of political power and legitimacy for, for the future. So there is this separation between behaviors uh, and governance, and that's likely to continue, I assume. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is no talk whatsoever of um, political reform. You know, that's, that's, that's not on the agenda at all. This is this is about you know social reform, enabling economic transformation. I mean that you know that that's the vision. It's it's looking post hydrocarbons. How does this country, you know, which is effectively the size of Western Europe, that's sort of ninety percent, if not more, really dependent on hydrocarbons. How, you know, how, how does it manage that significant transition when its economic base really has to shift and change? It's it's definitely not about political reform. Um, there is nothing on the agenda. There is no there is no discussion uh, about you know emboldening or giving greater powers you know to the Shura Council, which is appointed. Um, there is no looking at Kuwait and thinking, do we want a parliamentary system that's going to emulate that, or are we going to have a system similar to the one that the Qataris are putting in place? No, no, no. This is. This is, in, in fact, what you, what you had, you know, since 2015, you've, you've gone from a system where you had, you know, a very large number of princes that were involved in decision making, where consensus was essentially the, you know, the driver of decision making. And that's why things used to take an absolute age to get done, where you've got a concentration, a consolidation of power in the hands, effectively, of, of, of one person. And, you know, that's the crown prince. And when he becomes king, it'll, it will sit entirely in his hands. Um, who wants to, you know, force through and push through change, the manner in which he wants to do it, and those he mobilizes behind him will be there to, you know, to make it happen. Um, but opening that space, definitely not. And when I when I look at Saudi Arabia now, say to ten years ago or even twenty years ago, um, it was much easier to have conversations, uh, you know, around politics, around reform. Twenty years ago, you could have those quite comfortably. Ten years ago, that started to close a little bit, um, but that but that space for discussion now has really, really narrowed. Um, so, so you've got a you know you've you've got a, a a real inconsistency in terms of where the political reform process is or where it's absolutely stopped, but the social economic space is opening up to some extent that parallels what's going on in other countries. It, it's true in the Emirates. It's true in other Gulf shakedoms. They are shakedoms first and going through this social transformation, perhaps economic transformation. Uh, is all of that sustainable? 
is there ultimately a conflict or is there a risk of conflict? I'm thinking of, of the Chinese comparison, the Russian comparison, other places that loosened up economically and socially didn't change politically. And sooner or later, there's there's a car crash. Are the cultures so different here that that's unlikely to happen anytime soon? It's it's hard to imagine it happening anytime soon. Um, I mean, if, if one were to sort of project out, you know, maybe 10, 15 years time, you could, you, you could, it, I mean, it really depends where, you know, where, where the economy sits, whether the expectations now, which are really through the roof, have been met. I mean, they're not going to be met, but, you know, have they been met 50%, then, then maybe they can sort of muddle through. Um, but, but, you know, if, if you've got a sort of uh, a discontent population that feels marginalized from, you know, the, the economic progress that's being felt by, by the elite, by, by the privileged in society, you could have the grounds for discontent. Um, there could be expressions of that, but, but it's hard to imagine it at the moment that, you know, that, that some way in the distance, if things don't go the way they're supposed to, I mean, obviously, you know, vision 2030 is there. Um, the aspirations there, the goals are there, the KPIs are there. They'll be very lucky to get to 40% of that, but you know, that, that in itself might be enough. But where you've got a system where you're reforming subsidies, where you're cutting some of the a lot of the benefits that, that have been you know uh, enjoyed by parents and, and, and grandparents, you, you know you start to sort of eat away a little bit at the, at the at the bedrock of support if if you know benefits don't percolate through other ways. So let's add some other ingredients to this souffle uh, and start with the Israelis. Can the Israelis and the and the Gulf Arabs? collaborate. They have a lot of the same issues to deal with, obviously. Is that part of this new Middle East and is it sustainable? So, so, so the states are sort of trying to move into that space and kind of, you know, hold the ring. Um, and, and I think, I mean, the relations between most of the Gulf states and, and Israel, as we know, have, you know, have existed informally for, you know, for quite some time um, and have operated on a number of levels. But I think what what's happened is, given that this kind of burden sharing is is very much there, given that Iran is seen essentially as a malign force in the region by the by the Gulf Arab states, you know, there's there's a natural tie up of interests between Israel and the Emirates specifically, and one can also sort of see that playing out certainly with with the Saudis. At what point that becomes public, at what point that becomes formalized, is is another matter. But I, but I see that I see that relationship, particularly between the Emiratis and the Israelis, as being very strong, as being as being quite robust. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org/donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. Dr. Doolittle had push me, pull you. Um, and as I think about the Israelis and the Arabs, it, it seems to me a combination of both. They have a lot in common, fear of Iran. Um, they have a lot in common, potential economic uh, transformations. That's been most pronounced, as you just said, with the Emiratis, but it's quite clear that others uh, want in that game. Um, I won't ask you how much is one, how much is the other, uh, but is it about opportunity or is it about fear? 
Now we've got sort of the the Sunni Israelis on one side and you've got the Persians on the other side uh, with who knows everybody on the side, the Americans, the Europeans, the Chinese, the Russians sort of circling all that. Uh, how does that work out? Does, does that, is there a solution that they can reach among themselves? Somehow the Persians, the Iranians, and the Arabs and the Israelis figure out, you know, it's the co-prosperity sphere stuff modernized. Is that possible? I think, I mean, I think it's difficult to, to imagine it um, coming together quite as comfortably as, as, as you've described. I think there, I mean, I, that is, that is a likely trajectory towards going to where it's heading, but that might be a good decade of again, 15 years till it gets there. I think I think what we're seeing now we seem to be in this process where um, alliances is, is, is again is too strong a word as as you've suggested but you know there are there are sort of emerging alliances and then they break and then there are new alliances so so if if one winds back you know a, a few years ago you had two one alliance one counter if you like you had the Saudis you had the Emiratis. Arguably, you had the Israelis sort of tucked into that. You had the Egyptians, and there was this thought about, you know, Haftar being part of that in Libya. And we would probably characterize that as a um, very strange word to use in this sense, but secular states or states that, that, states that um, push back against Islam. So, you know, it's almost an anti-political Islamic alliance of states. You know, they believe in sort of secular rule in terms of policy, obviously not, not in terms of, um, you know, faith, faith structures. Um, they believe on having, you know, a, a strong and able and capable military and limiting space for political participation. Obviously, that doesn't apply to Israel, but that, that's how it was seen in that space. And on the other side, you know, you had loosely aligned, you could say, Turkey, Qatar and Iran. But of course, you know, we've, we've seen a de-escalation over the past, you know, nine months in the region. We've seen the Emiratis now sort of, you know, not cozying up, but, but certainly from a tactical perspective, um, speaking more and more to the Iranians. Obviously, they've, they've, they've got the Abraham Accords, but they've started to engage with the Turks as well. And they're, they're looking to explore that. So you've got this flux in an, in an order. Um, and it's not clear quite how that's going to mesh together, whether that's going to come together in something comparable where there is a, a system of managing the security where each player can somehow sort of plug and play into that. Um, that's some way or somewhere off. But I see the Emiratis as being instrumental in sort of you know, working amongst and between all of these different states at, at any one given time. The likelihood that they'll get burnt is 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 quite significant or quite high. But to go back to your earlier question, you know, they can play with Iran. Um, they can see how far they can get. They can manage that relationship because it, there's there's a concern about the threat that Iran poses. Um, but I see that you know their key relationship really going forward as as Israel. Um, that relationship with Israel will allow them to hedge against Saudi, you know, the regional hegemon. They're trying to play through Israel to work that relationship now. The Emiratis. So, yes, with, with, with Turkey. So it, I see the Emiratis as sort of being central to all of these sort of little small forming 
groupings well it's best to call them but I, I think i think that space is going to be in flux for some time to come so it, you know it's hard it's hard to identify one potential alliance because you know in six months time that will break up that the, the contours of that will shift well let me ask about the dark underbelly we haven't had a big war in the region for some time yemen uh intifadas etc but Big wars involving multi-states for some time. Um, and it wasn't that long ago that there was a profound worry that another one was inevitable, this one between Iran and its uh, friends and, and, and the Gulf Arabs. Uh, it was indeed part of the motivation for the American uh, deployments uh, during at least part of this period. Is that impossible now? is one question and the flip side of that question, which we've not mentioned the N word, which in this case is nuclear. Um, if the Iranians go from near breakout to actually weapons, uh, does that change everything? So, I mean, nothing is inevitable, of course, but but I find it very hard to imagine that you have an, you know, an interstate conflict. Um, you can have a, a hot conflict, but but you know, Iran say invading or a Gulf Arab state carrying out like a sovereign invasion into into Iran. I can't I can't you know that's that for me that's almost impossible to to imagine. So there is no Saddam Hussein floating around in this ether. No, no, I don't. I absolutely not. I mean, the Iran the Iranians are not about to do that, and I can't I can't see. Uh, any certainly any any of the the regional states wanting to get involved in that. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we say this a lot. You know, MBS thought he was going to go into Yemen; it was going to be done in two weeks. I mean, you know, painful lessons have been learned. Um, it it doesn't mean obviously that you know conflict by other means by proxy, which is which is the way in which you know business is done in the region, isn't going to continue or isn't going to intensify. I mean, we we can see that we're in a point at the moment of de-escalation. Um, that can easily that the heat can certainly sort of be turned up again, depending on where JCPOA is or on 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 nuclear weaponization, as as you've sort of referred to. Um, but I, I think we're 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 in this phase at the moment where all sides are sort of evaluating, reevaluating, you know, where their real interests are. Just to flip back to Saudi, just for a second. I mean, MBS, you know doesn't want to go to war with, with with Iran. I mean, that poses a massive threat to the country. He wants to get the economy up and running. He wants to break, bring about that transition and that transformation. I think he's probably learned some painful lessons uh, since coming to prominence. That, you know, that's his key focus. So he's likely to do all that he can to prevent to prevent conflict. Um, and the Iranians, you know, they have their legacy of, 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 of wars anyway. Uh, and they've, you know, they've suffered, you know, tremendous losses as a consequence of that. Hence, you know, they, they pursue war by other means. Um, the question on, on JCPOA, it's more about the weaponization and weaponization is probably a year away, even if they were to break out in, you know, in the next month. So, so there, there is that period, I guess, in which JCPOA can address that. But certainly if, if the Iranians chose to weaponize, then that even if they get to break out, I think that will spur a nuclear arms race in the region. 
Um, I don't think the Emiratis and I don't think the Saudis would would um, be comfortable sort of, you know, sitting back and thinking, okay, we're, we're going to live under the, the umbrella that the U.S. has provided us for a long time. Because their confidence or the faith in that or, is no longer. Or under the Israeli umbrella. Right, right. As this region changes, is it the American umbrella that they might be looking to to invoke or the Israeli umbrella? We all know the Israelis have, have nuclear weapons. Um, we don't say it out loud very often. But part of this new alignment does indeed perhaps have that aspect. I mean, I, I, I certainly think that that's there. And I, 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 and I would strongly suspect that the Emiratis and, and certainly the Saudis, if, if they were to go down this route, would, would be looking for that umbrella. But, it's, but you know, it will be tried and untested whether the Israelis would be willing to, you know, to sort of raise the umbrella in, in, you know, in, in support of those states is, is another matter. Um, the, there's still a lot to work out on what those relationships actually mean in, you know, in, in practice and in fullness and to understand, you know, are they real alliances or are they, you know, transactional relationships that, you know, that, that serve one another's purposes. But, you know, where, where are the red lines? Those things don't, Obviously, they, they haven't been mapped out and they haven't been tested either. But, but most definitely, I mean, there, there is a look to Israel and Israel's capability to lend, you know, lend support to certainly to the Emirates. But, but I'm sure the Saudis will be looking for that, too, in a sort of, you know, in, in, in a post-U.S. environment. Well, maybe that's where we should go at the end of this conversation, which is the post-U.S. environment. So you're in this space where the Americans are still more leaving than coming and the Chinese aren't quite coming yet. Uh, although I've seen recently, truth, who knows, the Saudis are, are manufacturing ballistic missiles with the help of the Chinese. Uh, the American intelligence claims that the Chinese are building a military facility in the UAE. Uh, we recently saw all the Gulf foreign ministers scamper up to Beijing um, in ways that wouldn't have happened a year or two or three or certainly five years ago. Uh, so from a geopolitical point of view, clearly there's a lot in play, um, not to say the role of Britain, not to say the role of, of, of the Europeans, nor the Turks, the Moroccans, who, who, else, who else might play in the space. Um, but focus on China. What does China want in the Gulf and what do the Gulf states want from China? Is this part of the hedging strategy? Certainly, from 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 the Gulf states, it's it's part of the, the hedging strategy. Um, you know, they they need to diversify their relationships, um, particularly after I think after after the attacks on Abkhaz in September, you know, twenty nineteen. I think the the Saudis and Emiratis were were shocked by what they would have seen as you know U.S. inaction um, in in response to those strikes. And I think as a this is, this is the this is the attack on the oil facilities. Exactly, that's right. On Abkhaz and Khores, you know, which which took out a lot of uh, a lot of uh, refining and production for you know a short period of time. Um, but I mean, they were they were precision strikes. I think the Iranians were able to demonstrate a capability that the Saudis had probably not anticipated. Um, so you must be a diplomat. You said that very, very precisely. <laughs> I've probably said it quite a few times. So, so, that, so, that, so that's where that comes from. <laughs> I, but that was, you know, that was a deep and profound shock 
And I think that, you know, that sent literally sent a shockwave across the Gulf. And I think, you know, that there's this sense, okay, you know, our key partner is the US. And that, that there's no doubt about that still. And you know, and I and I sat with um some very senior Saudi officials a few months ago and I was asking about China and they were saying, you know, make no bones about it. You know, the US is our number one uh partner. And you know, and, and I believe that, but that doesn't mean you know we're not we're look we're looking out to the future, and we understand that U.S. interests are elsewhere. So therefore, we need to hedge. We need to diversify, and diversification, whether that's economic, whether that's through security, is just a fact of life. And that's you know that that's something we have to do. And I think that's you know that that's what you're seeing essentially at at, at the moment. Um, I recall. Um, when I was when I was sort of with the, with with the Foreign Office, one of, one of my colleagues, um, now a former ambassador, recounting how he had accompanied a number of Gulf leaders to you know to China to Beijing, um, to discuss sort of opening up the relationship. And so this is a decade ago, um, and 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 the leaders came back. They were bitterly disappointed because you know the Chinese wanted the oil or the Chinese wanted the energy resources, but nothing else. They wanted nothing strategic, whatsoever. Um, and they just simply looked at the region. This is the, the former ambassador's terminology. You know, as a, as a gas station it, for them, it was transactional. It was a gas station. Yes, we need that for our you know our own growth and development. But I think in that in that ten year period, that's that has started to change. China is looking at the region um, more more strategically. I don't think it's it's it does have its strategic relationships, of course, and it is committing resources through the you know through the BRI, um, and and I think we will start to move it sort of move, see it move into that space. But I mean, of course, we all know. I mean, it does. It wants to bandwagon on the U.S. security. It does not want to provide that security. It does not want to move into that space, and. Again, sort of pre-COVID, I made a number of sort of visits to Shanghai and to Beijing, um, at, you know, at the behest of the Chinese Foreign Ministry, as with my Chatham House hat on, to discuss Syria and a few other issues. And they were looking at the time and trying to better explore and understand whether whether they should engage in sort of you know Syrian reconstruction or they should engage more politically on Israel-Palestine. Um, and I think my takeaway from that was, you know, the costs for them would be too high. They just simply don't want to get involved on that level. They would like to take the spoils, um, but they don't want they don't want to expend, you know, that that diplomatic, political, um, or mil certainly military capital. And they want to be friends with absolutely everybody. Hence, you know, the Iranian foreign ministers in in Beijing today, they want to they want to be friends with both sides of the Gulf. And I think for the time being, that's that's the position they want, and they want the U.S. to remain there as best as they can, um, you know, providing that umbrella. Maybe that's going to change in twenty years' time. I keep thinking China's going to be there in the next forty or fifty years. It's going to be ruining the day that it has really moved in and occupied that space. But but for the time being, I think it's just looking and you know navel gazing and thinking, okay, can can we manage to? help manage this region as the U.S. moves out without committing, uh, you know, military resources. Well, thank you for that. I've been trying to think what I'm going to call this episode. And I, I was committed to Game of Thrones, uh, but maybe it should be As the World Turns, uh, which is an old American soap opera. But um, 
maybe applies in this case. So, Neil, thank you very much for all of that. I appreciate, um, I appreciate your insights. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Buenissimo. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. Mm-hmm.